Hi everyone, this is Sarah Fox. What you're about to listen to is part one of the Here in the Gorge live event that happened October 24th, 2019 at the Columbia Center for the Arts in Hood River, Oregon. The audio has been slightly edited for length and the evening included a live studio audience and special guest Terry Brigham, who you'll meet in part two. Please note in this part, there is some adult language. The event was funded in part by the Hood River Cultural Trust, who I want to thank for their ongoing support of Here in the Gorge. All right, here we go. All right, hi everybody. Welcome. Who's excited about this? Wow, I have been looking forward to this. I'm super psyched. Uh, my name is Becky and I wear a lot of hats. One of them is I'm on the board of Gorge Owned, which is a community-supported nonprofit that's working towards thriving, connected communities here in the Gorge. And one of our programs is um, the Sense of Place Lecture Series. Have you, who's heard of that? Cool. Um, we're now in our 10th year, um, in large part thanks to the dedication of Amanda Lawrence, who can't be here tonight. And... Um, I just, to give a little, this amazing podcast is sort of born out of a sense of place. Uh, a few people here probably participated probably two and a half years ago in Travel Oregon's Rural Tourism Studio. Raise your hand if that was, a few of you did. So it was a really cool opportunity to bring people from around the gorge on both sides of the river together and to really think about how could we create some cool projects that would raise awareness about the gorge, get people interested in coming to visit here, and, but also really get to know it and have a more deep connection to this place. And in part because of the success of Sense of Place and the fact that Amanda was on that committee along with Colin Fogarty, who worked for OPB, um, the idea of a podcast was born that would kind of be a supplementary, complementary thing to Sense of Place, but allow us to share some amazing stories from the Gorge on a much wider national, international scale. And they were smart enough to recruit Sarah Fox. She's a very talented storyteller. And um, as somebody in my other life. I'm a journalist and a, um, a writer myself, and I've worked on crazy deadlines, worked on getting, um, trying to find sources for articles, and I don't know anybody in all of my career who, has, who works harder than Sarah to really get to know her sources and work hard, cold calling people, begging people um, to let her into their lives. And it, it is really hard to really connect at a deep level sometimes with people to let them trust you and let them into your private life. And Sarah has been able to do that. And it's um, really loud and clear in these podcasts. It, it, it's hard to get through one without crying. And um, I'm just so thankful that she is lending her talents to this amazing um, to our community and helping get uh, voices from this community out to the world. So without further ado, I'm gonna bring her on stage. Thank you. Thank you. 
Wow, wow. Thanks for coming, you guys. Thank you. Um, I'm Sarah. Uh, I've been producing and hosting here in the Gorge of the Podcast for a few years now. Um, and Becky told you how that came about. She had a much nicer reason for why they came to me to produce it. Um, I was saying this morning to Amanda and Becky, the way I remember it, was that Amanda came to me and was like, you know, do you want to do this thing? We don't, we don't really know what it's going to look like, but we want a podcast, and here's how it might work. And, and the reason I want you is because you like to talk to strangers. And that, those are the credentials that I remember her being like the most pumped about. So, um, which I mean, it's true. So, um, but it reminded me in thinking about that of a story that has stuck with me because um, I've referred back to it a number of times to try to figure out what the hell I'm doing with my life and, and where it's going and why certain things interest me. And it's a story from when I was a senior in high school and I was in um, an AP English class. We were really into English. And I loved my teacher. It was the kind of teacher who just changes your whole life. And I remember her talking one day and she shared this epiphany she had where she was parked at a stoplight. And she stopped and she looked around and saw all these people in the other cars and people walking and people on the sidewalk and with your dog and everything. And she thought, oh my gosh, all of these people are never going to know me. And I was, I was shocked for two reasons. One, because that sounded kind of egotistical. and That was totally not what she was like. Second of all, and this is the thing that matters here, I heard that and thought, oh my God, all these people around me and I'm never going to know them all. And it was like, I got to get to work. Holy shit. I mean, this is, I have a lot of things. I'm thinking like I get to Africa, I got to Asia, I got to get to New Zealand, I got to get all around to meet all these people. Um, and I think, you know, in the course of like you leave high school, you go to college, you figure things out. Like that probably sort of ebbed and flowed in my life. And, and, and later as I found um, work with OPB and doing documentary film and that sort of work, I realized that that, for me, is when I feel the most like me. And when this podcast was offered, I loved that um, <laughs> no one knew what it was going to be. <laughs> Clearly, based on what I produced, based on the budget we have, shows that I had no idea, <laughs> because the, the budget did not um, match the work at all. Um, but um, it was really, um, I think I remember saying to my husband early on, after I produced the first episode, um, this work to me and the work that I get to do with folks like Terry um, feels more like me than anything else I've done. So the fact that, thank you, thank you very much. Um, and it wouldn't be nearly as fun if no one was listening. So thanks a lot, guys. <laughs> so I produce a podcast, which usually you can listen to in your pajamas while you're folding clothes or like doing the dishes. Um, but here we are live. It's the first here in the Gorge Live. It's actually the world premiere. I don't know. Kind of a big deal. Kind of a big, I, don't, I, mean, I don't know how you all got tickets. I'm surprised. Um, so uh, <laughs> you may not have read the fine print that tonight there was actually an experiment, and you all are my guinea pigs. So thank you for that. <laughs> um, the way this came about is I was doing this work that I love, and am still doing, and still love. Um, but I do a lot of it alone. I'm at a computer, um, alone editing. On, on my best days, I get to be at someone's house interviewing them or out on the job with them. Um, but there was a lot of alone time. 
And the other thing I was finding is that there are a lot of people in our community and everywhere who are amazing, um, what I call everyday people. I mean, just like all of us, we're just everyday people. We're not, we don't do amazing things and get on the news, but we have some of the most amazing stories. And I was getting to meet these people and talk to them for, for episodes of the podcast. And there was a part of me that thought, damn, I want other people to hear from these people and I can't produce enough podcasts to do that. Is there a way that we could somehow create something for those people who are not the types who are gonna do an hour long sense of place lecture? It's just, that's not everyone's bag and I get that. <laughs> um, but some way to facilitate having those stories get shared. Um, and on top of that, I'm a people person. I was like, is there a way that we could do this? And I could also occasionally see other people besides my computer. And I thought, what, what if we just bring those people here, and then we see people want to come listen, and we just do a one-off event, but we record it, and then we can share it so that it can live into the future and other people can hear it, and wouldn't that be great? Because there are so many people who I know I want to hear from, and someday, if this experiment works, I think you guys will hear from. Um, so tonight's experiment is to see if that works, and what works and what doesn't. Um, if you guys are game, then we'll get go. Okay? You have no choice, Terry. You're here. You're the only one who doesn't have a choice, okay? All right. You can do it. Terry's already crying. It's okay. No, I'm just kidding. Um, all right. So, um, like I said, I get most excited about the people that I meet. There's nothing better than the day that I um, roll up to someone's house or workplace and get to meet them. And um, the first person that I want you to meet is someone named Homer. Um, and the way I'm gonna introduce him to you is there is a short clip that sort of has a montage of a number of different people that I've been able to speak with over the past um, few years. And at the very end, you'll hear a little bit of Homer. So I'm just gonna let you hear this as an intro and then we'll take it from there. And you'll find just one little piece of information. All of a sudden, a whole different thing opens up for you. Welcome to Here in the Gorge. Hello, radio. One, two, three, four. Am I getting out? A podcast that digs into the stories of a place. You know, you had so many goats, you had so many cows, and you had so many slaves. And listens to the people who know it best. And you know, in those days, it took over two hours to get from Portland to Hood River. Each episode starts here, in the Columbia River Gorge, but you never know where we'll end up. But I am leaping out of my chair. Now, it happened yesterday at Punchbowl Falls in the Columbia Gorge. I've it never heard some of this table. stuff. And we're in our home here in White Salmon. Damn guy was a spy. Men never stopped believing in the promise of his country. There was no known recording of Woody Guthrie singing Roll on Columbia. I'm just going to ask a question just for the sake of clarity. Now there is one. This is Here in the Gorge, stories that will change your sense of place. Yeah, I'm the baby boy. How old are you now? I'm 91. I'm going to be 92 this December. <laughs> baby boy is Homer <laughs> and Homer is the very first person that I interviewed for the very first episode of this um, he lives up in Seattle but he was born actually just I mean I could I could 
a stone's throw from where I work now. His house is no longer there. Um, and Homer Yasui, uh, he's Japanese-American, and he grew up here in the gorge. And that episode um, was, I thought, going to be just this home run story about uh, Min Yasui, which is Homer's brother, and some of you guys may know. Um, last I checked, Oregon has only one Presidential Medal of Freedom winner, so the highest civilian honor in our country, and Min Yasui is the recipient. And he was also born right near where my office is, right here in Hood River, um, which says a lot about Min Yasui and the whole Yasui family. So I thought, this is a home run. I just, I've got this hometown hero, Japanese American, great local story. We'll just tell Min Yasui's story. And um, I started asking around and figuring out, well, who would be the people that I would talk to? And Homer's name came up. And so I went up to Seattle. And um, you know, this is the first interview I'd done. And I, um, I have my little bag. I, I bring much less stuff than I do when, I, when I'm doing film. I've got cameras and more mics. Or sometimes you have like a sound guy and a, a camera guy and me. And so you sort of like, you know, trundle into someone's house. You know, you're just like this big, you know, chaotic storm coming in. But here was just me and my like little roly-poly bag here to see Homer and talk to him about his brother. And I was so, I was, I was nervous. And we go and we sit in, in Homer's office and I honestly had no idea how long this was gonna take. I just, you know, it was ignorance is bliss, I guess. And Homer's sweet wife, you know, just was waiting at the living room. We went in the office and we closed it down. Um, and I started talking um, with Homer and he shared a story <laughs> that I think any of you guys here um, who, I mean, anyone who's from the Gorge will recognize what he's talking about. Um, and this is the story of Mitchell Point as he knew it. The thing that always used to gladden my heart when we come to Mitchell Point and we're going through the Mitchell Point Tunnel. It was carved out of solid basalt rock and they had windows that overlooked the Columbia River. And you know, in those days, it took over two hours to get from Portland to Hood River because it's the winding old scenic road. And in the beginning, they didn't have the yellow stripe to separate the right side from the left side. So it was kind of scary, you know, because my father, as I say, my father was not a good driver. Sometimes he'd be on the wrong side of the road. But that's where, that's where it gladdened my heart, where Mitchell Point, we're almost home. Uh, almost home. So that became the name of the episode because um, what was awesome and um, is when I sat down with Homer and expected to talk about his brother, Min, almost immediately said, well, this story really starts with our father. And the story ended up being much more about Masuo Yasui, the, their father who chose to come here and start a new life and what he went through. And he, I remember Amanda Lawrence, who hired me in the first place, said something early on. She said, um, here is this man who was one of the most respected people in the gorge. It didn't matter if you were Japanese or Caucasian. This man was the man you trusted and respected. And the war happened, and a town turned against him. And that just stuck with me. And, and hearing from Homer how that affected his father, and then hearing how that affected men, um, and then taking a look at those two different generations and how um, and how that affected, how, what that showed about us, whether we're in the gorge or anywhere else where people are moving and, and trying to make new lives. And so 
What I, I give Homer a lot of credit for is that going into that interview, you know, my little bag and nervous and everything, um, none of us really knew what this podcast would be. If it would just be like little stories from the gorge, like, hey, you know, go, you know, go to this little thing here, and that only locals would care about it. And as soon as I left the interview, I knew that this could be something bigger that the stories that are rooted here, and they all are, from Homer to Terry, all these stories start here, but they all have the potential to be much bigger, which is why I think people beyond the gorge have listened, and why I hope some of the things that, that you guys have taken away um, go beyond the gorge. So Homer really, he, he set the bar. I knew after he shared what he did that I needed to, to take it, take it to a different level, regardless what the budget was. So, um, <laughs> so um, this idea that stories could be rooted in the gorge, but then become much bigger, and then this idea that I damn well better produce something that lives up to what someone is giving me, which is uh, their time and a story, which to me is literally like after like, like family and friends and my children, like the greatest gift anyone gives me. And I rolled right from Almost Home and the Yasui story into a story about the Craig Rats. So, so Sense of Place, that first season of the Sense of Place um, had uh, someone come talk about the Craig Rats, who are the mountain search and rescue group here that we have in the gorge. The oldest one in the country, mind you, is right here in the gorge. They're also very busy. And so, so we knew that, okay, we want to do an episode on the Craig Rats. What's it going to be? How are we going to do this? And, and um, this is where I, I learned, and I've continued to learn, that finding a story is often the scariest part, because going into every episode, it's always like, oh my god, I don't know what I'm doing. This is horrible. I'm never going to find anything. This, I'm, I'm the worst. I'm a total fake. What's going on? I mean, that, literally every episode is that way. I don't know if that's how it is in your guys' job, but that's how it is in my job. So, um, so I, I'm, you know, the way, and the way I figure it out, the way I've learned to figure it out is you just start talking to people. I talk to strangers, so, and, you know, I start talking with them, Craig Rats, and, blah, 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 and they lead me to Tom Russo, who I know is here somewhere. Um, Tom Russo is a Craig Rat. He has been for a while, and, and, um, and I meet him and sort of accost him, as I sometimes do, and I was like, okay, so you, you're a Craig Rat. You, I think you'd been, like, a president. You know, he was, he was highly involved. Um, I, I mean, I think like if I was if I was nice, I would say they invited me to dinner. But I think really, I invited myself to Tom's house for dinner, and because I, I was like, I just want to hear some stories. Like, just tell me tell me what you know. I need to find the, the storyline we're going to follow. And so I show up at um, Tom and Sandy's house, and they make me dinner. It was really nice. It's really good food. Beautiful house, and um, and we start talking. And I had heard other Craig Rat stories. I mean, you guys probably know them. It's like someone's in a crevasse on Mount Hood. You know, someone's hanging off the summit with you know the wind blowing them, or you know, like their you know helicopters crashing. I mean, there's plenty of like epic Craigrat stories. So, and those are kind of like home run. I mean, and another sort of home run, like I would tell a story of like a mountainside rescue. Like that's exciting, and I could use exciting music and stuff, and really cool sound sound effects and stuff. <laughs> um, so I'm talking with Tom, you know, kind of on the edge of my seat, like, all right, where's you know, which one are we gonna get? And I was like, all right, so Tom, like, what's the one, like, what's that one Craig Rat story, like, quintessential, like, what's the one you remember? And Tom, and if you know Tom, like, he is a gentle, quiet, like, soul. He's just, like, the absolute opposite of me. Like, he is not like this. Uh, he's, yeah. 
Um, and, and he sits back and he thinks for a second. He goes, you know, the one that I really remember is this, this rescue of a little boy who was on his first father-son camping trip. And as soon as he said that, I was like, I know this is going to be the one. And, and the reason that I liked it was because, um, for me, part of what the Craig Rats do, and, and also part of what I like, is I'm not a, um, like a, a glitter famous person kind of story. I don't, I don't get excited about that. I get excited about the stories that are, that are about all of us and, and, and are about the things that could happen to any of us. And so when Tom told me this story, I knew that that was, that was what I wanted to follow. And so I knew I had Tom. He'd been on the rescue. And then Tom put me in touch with Richard Holman, who had been on the rescue. So both of those guys are Craig rats. So I was like, OK, I've got that piece of the story. I'll talk with them. I'll figure out what does it look like from the Craig rats side of a rescue. But I was like, I thought about it. I was like, God, I really need to find this dad. Um, his name's Kim. And the thing is, that he doesn't live in the gorge. So I was like, I just didn't feel like I could tell this story without him. I didn't think the story would be as good, but I also didn't, it just kind of felt like, I don't know if it would be OK. And so I started doing some sort of online sleuthing. Um, and, and finally, with some help, I find uh, the phone number of, of Kim Hancock, the dad of the little boy. And I can, I can tell you right now, I will never be a hard-hitting journalist because it took me a week and a half to finally call the number because I was so nervous. I was like, I remember talking with my husband on like a Friday and he's like, have you called him yet? And I was like, well, it's Friday and people sometimes kind of go home from work early and so I'm just going to wait till Monday. You know, he's kind of be ready to start the week, you know? He's like, you need to just call them. And the reason I was nervous is because, um, like Becky mentioned, I'm calling a total stranger, as a total stranger, to ask if they will sit and tell me about what was very likely one of the worst days in their lives. And I was fully ready and would have totally understood if when I you know, explained to them what I was doing, they told me to F off. You know? And they would have had every right to. And what was amazing is that his wife answered. I knew it was his wife because I'd done so much like online detective work. I like knew <laughs> I knew where he lived the last three addresses. So it's like, but I'm trying to play it cool, you know. And it's that awkward like, where like they're like, hey, and you're like, how can I in two seconds say two minutes worth of stuff? Like, hi, my commands Sarah Fox and his podcast. And blah, blah, blah. So I get through most of my little thing, and then I say, um, I'm doing a story about the Craig Rats, and she stops me, and she goes who we love. And I was like, oh, OK, 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 we're good. And, and I was like, that's great. And she's like, now, can you tell me who you are again? So I had to go through my spiel and I told her. So, so they were on board, um, partly because they, they were a family, one of the most amazing, um, just full of grace families, um, just a really incredible family, and partly because the Craig Rats you know, were there for them when they needed them. So, um, <laughs> I want to play you a little bit from the interview with Kim. So this is Cole's dad. And I guess I should tell you, <laughs> this is the first, though not the last, interview I have done entirely in a car. Um, because he lives out in the Tri-Cities, but he had a project he was working on in Portland. And he's like, 
can we meet at the Portland airport? And I was like, and I want to push it, you know, whatever he wants, I'm going to do it. I was like, we'll meet at the airport. So we meet, we meet at the little, like, um, what's the, the panda, panda food place. <laughs> and I was like, I definitely can't interview him in here. Like, there's so much, you know, it's horrible. And I was like, okay, quick, think quick, think quick, okay. Rental car. So he had a rental car. So we went out in his rental car. And he sat in the back seat. And I kind of sat in the front. So we were, had like a little, you know, a little space. I reclined. Is that too much info? I thought it through. I thought it through. I mean, I had to think quick. But I was like, I feel like if we were in the back seat together, it was kind of weird. <laughs> like we just met. And if we were both in the front, there's like the console in the way. So I was like, this is, it, trust, you think about it next time you're in your car, if you're going to interview someone. <laughs> So this was my interview. This is a little bit of Kim um, talking to me from um, in the car. And he's talking about the beginning of the hike with his son, Cole. You know, as we're going in, this little boy was, I mean, I, I had to stop. I'm talking to him like, you know, I'll, we'll, we'll, take, we'll get up here and we'll, we'll take a rest for you. Oh, Dad, I'll be fine. I'm like, how about if we just do it just so that you can, you know, keep on the same pace? And we'd go sit down, and sure enough, there'd be ants or flies. And he's like, Dad, we shouldn't be sitting down. <laughs> Please, son, let me have a break. <laughs> but, you know, I've, I've learned that you don't, um, you know, if you give in to saying your dad needs a break, then they feel like they have the top hand, and they'll run you to death. <laughs> Kim is awesome. Um, I, I don't, I don't want to... I'm sure there's some people who haven't listened to that episode, but I kind of want to give a spoiler. Is anyone like super adverse to that? Okay, well, it's my show, so I guess I can do it if I want. But um, for those of you who've listened, if you haven't, you can plug yours. Um, it was really cool because maybe four or so months, I don't know how many months, after the episode came out, and I've been in touch with Kim, um, he called, and uh, so Cole, Cole lived. The boy, the son lived. Um, and Kim called me up, and he was like, we're getting ready. Um, Cole just became an Eagle Scout, I think it is, you know, like the, the super high level in scouting. And um, Kim was like, we want to have the celebration in Hood River, because it's kind of a middle point for their family. And so um, I got in touch with Tom and Richard. Um, and I think Tom was out of town, but Richard, wait, Tom, were you there? You were there. You were going to be out of town, and then you could be there. That's right. Tom and Richard were both there. Um, and got to meet Cole, and Cole got to meet them. You know, he'd never known that he'd met them. So this was the first time that everyone had met when it wasn't on the side of the mountain with Cole in a really critical state. So it was kind of fun to, to get to see the story come full circle and see Cole doing so well. So that was awesome. Um, so one of the things that I, uh, that I mentioned going to this is that for me, really, I take it maybe a little too seriously. I take it very seriously when someone takes the time to share their story with me, which is why these episodes sometimes take a long time to produce. It's because I really I feel a certain responsibility to people. And I really consider it a gift. And uh, I, so I think <laughs> I want to, I this, this is by way of I need to apologize to my mom because <laughs> she, for so many things. But she. Uh, <laughs> She listened to my, uh, uh, the most recent episode on tribal fishing, and she immediately was like, I want to know what this looked like. I want to know what this looked like. Well, you know, all this stuff. Like, where are the pictures? You know. So she's like, at the show, you need to have slides. You need to have photos. I want video. And I thought, I did think about that, because I'm all like, multi, you know, media, I can do that. 
And, um, and I started to put it together, and it totally, it just didn't feel like me. It didn't feel right. So mom, there's, no, there's not gonna be any slides tonight, okay? I can, sh I can show you the stuff you wanna see later, okay? Um, but one of the reasons that I, don't, I think it wasn't feeling right is I spend a lot of time listening to these amazing stories, some of them funny, some of them sad, some of them very, just, just amazing. I, I have them in my head, and you guys know if you listen to podcasts. Um, having done film and writing and all their kinds of things, I, I have, I've come to believe, I really think that the audio, audio in this form is the most intimate form of, of bringing a story in that I've experienced, which makes sense, right? I mean, we used to sit around, you know, fires and have the elders tell us stories. I mean, like, this is what we are built to do, is to sit and listen to a story. And one of the things that I love about this work that I'm doing now with the podcast, um, not only do I love that it's adaptable, like you can, you can listen while you're driving, you can listen while you're doing the dishes, you can, you know, you don't have to just like sit there and be zoned into to something. Um, but one of the things I really like about it is that everything that you hear, you have to engage. There's no way to stop your brain from picturing what Kim looks like or what we looked like in the back of the car or um, what, you know, what Homer Yasui looks like. I could have showed you what he looked like, but I love the fact that in your head, when you hear his voice, there's a part of your brain engaged creating your own part of that story. Um, and I love that about audio. I love it makes me feel really close to people when I'm listening to them, which is why you know Terry and I can not talk for like four months, and then I call her up, and I'm like, oh, I've been just hearing you in my head for so much. Yeah. So, so part of the reason I didn't want to do a slideshow is because I love that piece of audio, and I hope that we all um, just think about when we're listening that we are also playing a role in what those stories, what's coming out of those stories, um, and and. As an opportunity to practice that, I wanted to um, share a story from one of the greatest storytellers around, also one of the greatest singers, although at the time of this recording, he was not nearly as well known. And it is, um, he is the topic of the episode that came after the Craig Rats, which is Woody Guthrie and the Columbia River Songs, which if you don't, I mean, Woody Guthrie, yeah. like not Arlo. Woody, like, so I mean, before there, I mean, I mean, you guys know, this guy's amazing. He's the grandfather of folk, and, and he learned his songs and shared his songs, not, you know, like in the original, by going around and sharing the songs and learning them. It was amazing. And to know all that, and then here one day, well, and then he came to the, you know, the Columbia River and was hired by the federal government, you know, this like sort of borderline socialist you know, sort of dusty folk singer from Oklahoma, gets hired by the federal government for a month to write songs about the Columbia River and the dams. It was like, this is the weirdest story I've ever heard. I mean, <laughs> and then in 30 days, he writes 26 songs. I mean, this is amazing. And then time goes by, and the story's almost lost, which if you listen to the episode, you know why. And then it gets found again in some ways. It's on the episode, I won't go into it. So amazing story, um, and, and this little bit from him is from the Library of Commerce, he, um, Library of Commerce, the Library of Congress, um, when he was still not the full-on Woody Guthrie that we know, um, but on his way, and he's being interviewed by Alan Lomax. 
Well, what uh, what happened the night that first dust storm hit, or the day it first hit? Do you remember just exactly what you people did and what you said? Well, now you see this picture here. It shows you the big dust storm coming up, and uh, you know, just to see a thing of that th kind coming towards you, you wouldn't know exactly what it was because it's a freak-looking thing. You never saw anything like it before, but. We all sat there. We had seen dust storms of every other different color, flavor, description, style, fashion, shade, design, model. But anyway, I remember the particular evening of April the 14th, 1935, that this dust storm here blowed up. I was standing, a whole bunch of us was standing, just outside of this little town here that you see. And so we watched the dust storm come up like the... Red Sea, closing in on the Israel children. Anyway, we stood there and watched the son of a gun come up. And I'm telling you, it got so black when that thing hit, we all run into the house, and all the neighbors had all congregated in different houses around over the neighborhood. We sat there in a little old room, and it got so dark that you couldn't see your hand before your face. You couldn't see anybody in the room. You could turn on an electric light bulb, a good, strong electric light bulb in a little room just about the size of this studio here. And that electric light bulb hanging in the room looked just about like a cigarette a-burning. Who needs video and photos? I mean, that is, I just love imagining that, what it feels like to be there. Um, I want to talk with you guys about one more episode before um, I invite Terry to come join us. The next episode was, was on the Oregon Trail, specifically on the Barlow Road, which any of you guys who are from the Gorge should have a certain amount of pride about because for all these Oregon Trail pioneers, you know, trucking their way out west, they finally get to the Oregon border, and you've got to think it's like, oh, made it to Oregon. But the hardest overland section of the whole darn trail is here in Oregon, and it happens to be right here in the Gorge. So your choices were kind of go down the Columbia River with all your stuff, everything you have in the world, or go or on this really tough road section. So I learned, I didn't know any of that. I mean, when someone told me about the Barlow Road before I did this episode, I was like, I, I mean, I don't know anything about the Barlow Road. Um, and now I do. And what was great about this episode is it, it made me realize two themes that have been in pretty much every episode that I've done, and I would imagine will continue to pop up. And the theme, one of the first ones, or the first one is, in every episode, except maybe the Craig Rats, um, there has been a theme of people moving. The, the Japanese Americans that came to the gorge, and then we had the Woody Guthrie, so you've got all the Okies coming out to California, um, and then we had Oregon Trail, obviously a lot of people moving. Um, and I, So I thought it was interesting to see that this theme came up, even though these stories were all so different and in different periods of time in different places. Um, one of the pieces of people moving that I had never thought about was this one, and this is uh, Gwen Carr, who is um, a member of the Oregon Black Pioneers Organization. Did you know that there were black people on the Oregon Trail? I know what the answer is already. No! Well, um, one of the interesting people that we talk about is a, a woman named Amanda Gardner Johnson. She had been given as a wedding present to her owner back in Missouri, I believe. 
And so, uh, you know, she had to come out. She was a she was a slave. But the interesting thing about it, um, and we know this is a true story because it's contained in diaries of these people. Uh, during the day, most of the time, she was in she was kept in a box that had holes in it so that she could breathe. I think one of the interesting things, and I say property, as I say property, it reminds me that when I'm talking with uh, particularly kids in school, and I mentioned that Amanda was given as a wedding present, I can see the look come over these kids' faces, you know, like how can that be? So I have to remind them that at that time in our history, blacks were considered property. You know, you had so many goats, you had so many cows, and you had so many slaves. Gwen was amazing. Um, that episode, I said, so there's two themes. And the, the second theme that came up in that, which came up in all of the ones prior, and, and certainly the tribal fishing one, was this view of the Northwest as this paradise, as this Eden. I mean, time and again, this place, the people that are here are either here or coming here because of what the natural place holds. Um, and that was certainly the case for a lot of the pioneers coming out. Um, in addition to the free land, which we talk about in the tribal fishing episode. Um, but so I just want to um, send us out on this, where uh, Wendell Baskin, who was Wendell Baskins, was sort of my fearless guide for going on the Barlow Road. He was hilarious. Um, I think I said in the episode he was the closest thing I could have had. Like next, like if I couldn't have a pioneer from the 1800s. I got Wendell, like he was awesome, and he loves the Oregon Trail. Um, and so this is just a little bit from the actual episode, um, sharing a little bit about that theme and that idea of um, what we have in this corner of the country that we call home. There's such romance to the idea of striking out on your own. It has this inherent hope that wherever you're going will be better than where you've been. I can imagine 150 years, 60 years ago, 70 years ago, I was going to stand here and go, wow, you know, look at that meadow. If, if the Willamette Valley is like that, we have indeed reached the Garden of Eden. This is paradise on earth. It, it, it is utterly fantastic. That's our home. So. That's, that's my little background, babe. Uh, you know, I realized the one thing I forgot to say to all you children, but I think it's appropriate that it comes now before Terry joins me. I know there's a few of you children in here, including my own. Some of the words you are going to hear tonight are adult words. OK, Riley? I don't want to hear it said again, OK? Um, you, you neither, Michael. <laughs> um, so I need to, I don't even know where to start with Terry, because I feel like, maybe not the first time I met her, but, um, but probably the second time, I was like, like this, is, this woman in, is, this is my kind of woman. I love her. She is a, as you guys know who've heard the um, episode, she is a straight shooter. So. Um, <laughs> And so to help welcome Terry up, um, I want to play a little bit of Terry, being Terry, and then I'll have her join me on stage. 
Terry and her family are members of the Confederated Tribes of the Umatilla Reservation. And that's really important to this story. But it was also a potential stumbling block, for me at least. I'm thinking of, of all the things that as a non-tribal person I get nervous about or I think I'm probably doing this wrong or I avoid interacting because I'm afraid I'm going to like do something incorrect. So sometimes I'll have In a long and bumbling way, what I was trying to get at was simple. What did Terry want me to call her? Native American, Indian, First Nations, tribal, indigenous? Trust me. If I could have avoided the topic, I would have. It's not easy getting to know someone by leading with, what label do you prefer? But I knew that for this story, it'd come up. And I wanted to get it right. For me, at the end of the day, I, I really give two shits what you call me. I know who I am. I know what people I belong to. I know my tribe and I know my ancestors. And the fact that you know, people are wrapped up in labels instead of beings. You know, you and I have a different history. You and I have a different past, a different culture. So what do I got to figure out you're German or Irish or, you know, what, whatever. I, make, I mean, I get how they, I mean, because we're such low numbers, how people want to label us. But, you know, we joke around. We're Indian, we're Indians, we're, uh, we're natives, we're First Nations, we're, you know, for me at the end of the day, you know, you as my friend, you know who I am. And we don't need to have a label. I'm fine with being Terry, who's a fisherman and a captain and a hunter and a single parent of three beautiful children. That is Terry. Welcome, we're on stage. Now you've got some background on Here in the Gorge, the podcast, and some of the people we've met along the way. Now head over to part two and hear from the evening's special guest, the one-of-a-kind Terry Brigham.